Welcome, oh, yeah. everybody, to Elmtown Episode 2. We've got some opening announcements today. Uh, first is that we have our first sponsor, which is a huge surprise, and I'm very, very happy because that saves me some out-of-pocket money. So big thanks to HumbleSpark for covering our recording and our hosting costs. And we happen to have one of the members of HumbleSpark as a panel member. And he's here today. So, Luke, can Woo. you spend a couple seconds and tell us what you are and who you are? And stuff? Sure. Um, so, I'm Luke, and I co-founded this company, HumbleSpark, with my good friend Nick. That's uh, HumbleSpark.com. Throw that in the show notes. And uh, we're just a consultancy. So, we build front-end things. And um, one of the technologies we use is, of course, Elm. So, if anybody is in need of front-end work, we will do that. We're looking for a new client, and we'd be happy to help. Thank you so much, and thank you very much for covering those costs. That's really wonderful for us. Of course. If you are a person in the world who has tons of money burning holes in your pockets, we have other slots open for sponsorship, too, and we would love to talk to you. Um, one thing in particular is that editing and good show notes are really expensive. They cost a lot of money. Um, not Well, not just money. They cost either money or time, and... Uh, we happen to be short in those departments, uh, both of those departments right now. So if you are a person who has money and would like to sponsor editing and and good show notes and transcription or, or whatever it may be, uh, please let me know. Or if you are a person with more time than money and you want to help out and you're interested in editing or putting together show notes, please let me know and uh, we can arrange something. Next on the announcements list is that we now have a Twitter account. It's at Elmtown Podcast. And we've got a few followers already, and we've gotten a few questions uh, and suggestions sent in. I asked for questions the other day, got some neato replies. A bunch of the replies, a lot of them were about things that are, are yet to come forth and yet to be established in the Elm world, like, for example, server-side rendering and other things that are being worked on for the future. So rather than try to address those things before they're quite ready, we're going we're gonna to save those up. And we'll, we'll talk about them as they, as they appear, because I'm sure we'll all be very excited. Um, and for a lot of the questions too, we're probably going to have a future show just for answering questions. So if you, dear listener, asked a wonderful question and don't get it mentioned today, you shouldn't feel bad. You shouldn't feel like we've ignored you because we love you. Uh, on the topic of loving people, uh, I've, I've found that the Elm community is exceptionally inclusive. Uh, in the Slack chat, there's a lot of effort to make sure that everyone feels included and appreciated, which I, which I think is fantastic. And so uh, we want everyone to send us questions and suggestions for the show on Twitter or email or whichever, whichever method you choose. Uh, but I also want to take this moment to make a special invitation to particularly women who are listening and who are engineering and members of other tech minority groups to participate and make sure that you make yourself heard and, and talk with us because we want to hear from you. And, uh, we want to hear from everyone, but we know that especially uh, if, if you're one of those people, we know that especially it can be hard to make yourself heard, and we want, we want to be there, uh, part of you, part of your life. So uh, one question that I do want to bring up that we got asked on Twitter is, who is using Elm in production besides No Red Ink? Because we love No Red Ink, they're really cool, and they also are very vocal about their use of Elm. But I get the impression after ElmConf that there are more companies using this in production that just don't talk about it that much. So if you're listening and you're willing to let us know about how you're using Elm in production, please go ahead and send us a direct message on Twitter. Or you know you can find my, me on GitHub and use my email if you are uh, not Twitter friendly, if you don't, don't like the Twitters. 
And that is it for our announcements. So let's move on to the people. So you get to you get to stop hearing just my wonderful voice, uh, and we're going to start hearing Brian's wonderful voice and Blah. Luke's wonderful voice. Brian, will you go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay, sure. Uh, I'm Brian Hicks. Um, a lot of people will know me as that rando who was standing up on stage announcing things at OmConf. Um, In other words, the one of the organizers, you and Joseph. Well, I mean, yeah, you know. In other words, <laughs> uh, I'm also the CTO of Asteris. We are a cloud consultancy in St. Louis, uh, which is why HomeConf was in St. Louis, because me and Joseph both live here. Um, and I write about Elm a lot. So That's great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're excited to have you. Um, and just so that the listeners know, what we're going for here is kind of a rotating panel. I'm hoping to be on all the shows so that there can be... Uh, so that, you know, just you can be with me. No, I'm kidding. So that there's a kind of a contiguous thread of people, but we're trying to rotate through the panelists and get a big panel and just get get a, a number of people who are happy to come on and talk. And so you should be hearing different people each week generally, and uh, but, but still keep hearing from the same people over and over again um, over time so that we can kind of get to know the panelists too. So let's go on to Luke. Hey, Luke, you want to tell us about yourself? Surely. Uh, so I'm Luke. Most people know me by my first name. Um, and uh, I guess, like, my general thing is I'm just out telling people about Elm because it's, like, really helped me in my programming career. So I go out and give conference talks and make libraries and demos and, and such to encourage that. That's fantastic. And I will introduce myself again. I'm Murphy Randall, and I work at a company called Day One, and we are currently working on using Elm heavily in our iOS app and our Mac app and our web app. I can't yet say that we use it in production because all the work I'm doing is still pre-release, but we are planning to, and we're loving it. Um, and that's me. Yep. And uh, I also love to talk about Elm because I think it's a fantastic language and I like working it. So let's, uh, let's do some catching up. Why don't we go through and talk a little bit about what we've been doing, some of the work we've been doing, and uh, what just maybe some cool stuff you've run across while you've been working and, and plans you're making. You know, just sell us. Sell us on the stuff that you're doing right now. Let's start with Brian. Okay, cool. Um, lately, I've been working on something called Converge. It's a configuration management system, which is, like, totally not Elm's, like, area of... Uh, like problem-solving domain, um, but that's what we're doing. Uh, basically, we're using Elm to write a front-end to it, because basically the idea here is that we can express computation as a graph and then execute as a graph, so we get like automatically managed parallelism and stuff. Um, but we want to be able to visualize that, and it's going to be behind firewalls, so we can't just like stick roll bar in front of it and know if something goes wrong. So uh, Elm is a good choice for that. Um, I've also been writing a lot about JSON recently. Um, JSON decoders seem like a really big, uh, kind of a pain point in learning Elm. Um, a lot of people just give up and say, well, I'm just going to write a model, like literally in my init, rather than deal with this. But they eventually have to do JSON. Um, so this month on my blog, it's just all JSON, once a week, uh, something about JSON. Um, and hopefully that'll help. I don't know. Way to go. I'm still looking forward to a brighter future when we have something 
that makes that a little bit more automated. And I believe it's coming. I think it's just on the team. Yeah, list. I, I don't actually think that it's necessary. It's You have to learn um, the JSON APIs as part of any programming language and to operate on JSON in a type safe way. Like, sure, you can introspect the JSON using like JSON to Elm, but you're always going to want to modify that encoder in some way. And so instead of that hurdle being pushed back to when you need to modify it, it's better to be upfront about it and say, I'm going to decode this now, and uh, th you just deal with it. That's a good point. And it is explicit. There is not a lot of magic going on. Yeah. I do remember learning a little bit about uh, generics in Haskell and how you can use generics to encode stuff in JSON, and I just didn't, like, it made zero sense to me yeah. until, like, a year later. So that is good because it, it did not take me a year to understand uh, JSON decoding and encoding it now. Yeah, it's like Legos. Yeah. How is yeah. it like Legos? I mean, well, I agree with you, but I want to know. Uh, because Legos have this standard interface. Like, you can buy a Lego today and snap it onto a Lego from, like, the 60s, which is freaking awesome. Wow. Um, and they work because they don't change the interface, right? And JSON is a bit like that because you have, like, uh, the int decoder and the string decoder and one of, and they all follow the same interface. So you can just compose them. So if you have a list of strings, that is a list decoder coupled with a string decoder and that's it, right? The only really hard part is figuring out how to extract things out of JSON objects, um, which can be a source of significant pain. But uh, I've been trying to address that. So. Well, that's a great analogy. I had never thought about that. And I had also never thought about the virtues of Lego backward compatibility. Oh, yeah. Th thanks for blowing my mind <laughs> with Legos and their skill. Well, that's really cool. Uh, so let's that's let's move on to Luke and hear some of the cool things that Luke is doing too. Cool. So I guess maybe I'll share like some stuff that I just did and some stuff that I'm working on, and then some stuff that I'm just like thinking about. So I just got home from like a little European speaking tour. I guess uh, I gave a, a talk, uh, sort of like an intro to Elm talk at um, Go To Conference Copenhagen. And that was super fun. Had a really good crowd and people were interested. And then on the way back, I stopped in Amsterdam and did a similar thing for a smaller group there for uh, GoTo Nights, just like this uh, meetup that kind of goes with the GoTo organization. Um, that was really fun. And I've never been to either of those cities. And the people were just lovely. And uh, I think. I convinced a couple people to to try Elm, so that was uh, that was good. I just got to know, Luke. Do you speak German? No, I, I only speak English and like barely at that. Well, we we can all get better, I guess. <laughs> we can all learn, learn learn the virtues of German. I think you speak excellent English. I just want to throw that in. Thank you. I'm doing Thank my best. For, <laughs> good job. Okay. So you just got back from that, and then now you're working on what kind of stuff? Uh, so now. I'm going to be doing some videos for SitePoint coming up. Very cool. And I assume those will be behind a paywall. I don't actually know a whole lot of details about that yet, so I'll be happy to share at some point. But um, I'm also planning to do a live stream sometime next week where I'm going to build a thing that demonstrates like how to use geolocation, the API, and then like forward that into a nice user experience and build a, an app that helps people find beekeepers because all the bees are dying. And that's like one of the things that 
you can't really do anything about that. Like it freaks you out because if all the bees dies, all the bees die, then all the people die too. Um, That's pretty severe. I know. It's crazy. Well, I'm glad you're going to solve it by building the, the beekeeper. <laughs> so we're going to save the human race with elm. Um, and then stuff I'm like thinking about is uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, encoders and decoders, not just for JSON, but for like other stuff. So like how does how can we apply the idea of a decoder to form data? It's like form data is this, this sort of like ball of, of information that you kind of know the structure, but it's defined by your form and it could be nested and it has, you, know, you might want to parse data types and, and validate them. So like decoders are great for JSON. So I'm thinking maybe JSON's like a specific case of a more general thing that we can also apply to other stuff. For sure. Wow, interesting. Um, I've also been thinking about update functions, which is stuff we're gonna talk about today. So that's cool. Teaser. Okay, we're going to roll into that in just a minute. I'm actually, I'm curious about something. Um, there's a lot of people doing Elm live uh, coding sessions, like, and streaming them. I think it's an interesting trend. What do y'all think of it? Luke, why don't you opine and then I'll opine? Sure. Um, I think it's really cool. I have discovered, so most of my uh, conference talks are also live coding and I've discovered people really like them just because it's it's sort of more instructive to see how a person gets from like point A to point B in their code instead of just like seeing a diff. Like the totally little details different. like seeing um, why a person like moves to a different line or like what they delete and then retype kind of as mm. it's happening is, is really instructive. Or like how their files are laid out. Yeah. That makes sense. Things like that are important. I I think it's awesome that people are sharing so much. I can't say that I have watched them, and this is because I have a pretty short attention span for watching things like that. Um, so I actually don't learn very much from videos in general, just because videos videos are typically quite long, uh, and I I tend to read things more quickly instead. But I I absolutely love that people are sharing, and I will share based on what Luke was saying that uh, at a React meetup a while back. One of the presenters did a live coding session instead of a slides thing, and uh, it was the first time I had really been able to see and appreciate a live coding presentation, and it really helped me a lot because I was able to actually see how this presenter was jumping around between files, and I got to get the context of what they were talking about instead of having all of that be assumed that I already knew it and, and showing only specifically the technique that was being showed off. So I'm a, actually a big fan of live coding uh, in presentations, and I, I love it. I think more people should do it. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that uh, Aaron Vonderhaar has been doing one every week. Yeah, he's even got a logo now. Yeah, he just streams straight to Twitch, doesn't he? I'm not sure. I actually haven't been able to watch it yet. The videos all yes. go on, on YouTube once they've been processed, I suppose. Which is fantastic. Yeah, and is. all the code is on GitHub. This is actually one of my... I'm going to ruin it, but this is one of my picks. So maybe I'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, pick it at the end. Uh, I'll take that as an opportunity to do some catching up on myself. So I'm an Egghead instructor, egghead.io. And I've made a few Elm videos, which I've quite enjoyed doing. And it's a pretty rigorous process because 
one of the tenets of Egghead is we you need to be teaching something right away as soon as the video starts, and your video should be no longer than it takes to just teach the subject. So they, it's kind of the opposite of a live coding session where it's it should be the maximum uh, saturation of instruction per second possible in the video. It takes a lot of work to plan out something that's going to be that uh, entertaining and also that compact. So it takes a long time to make the videos, but I'm planning to do quite a few more in the coming months. I've had a lot of personal stuff going on with trying to sell my house and buy a new house and things, so that's been distracting me. But I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to make a, not a public promise, but a public statement that I'm hoping to get out many more of those very soon. And they've all been free so far at egghead.io. I don't know that they'll always be free, but, um, but a lot of them are. So hopefully you can learn by going there. And there are many other video training resources too, like the ones that everyone are putting up live sessions. And also Daily Drip has a ton of videos and they're a fantastic resource too. So I don't want to just be picking myself there. But that is what I have been up to is planning planning on doing some more videos. And then also working at day one, what I've been working heavily on recently is we make a journaling product. So our, our app allows users to write journal entries in Markdown and then render them. And we want to provide some fanciness in the rendering. So uh, maybe just some, some user friendliness. So we've been working on supporting things like uh, when users add images to the document, we want to identify when they have two portrait images that are following one another and stick them in line in the page layout so they look artistic and nice. Or things like we identify YouTube links and we uh, go and embed the video for them directly into their journal entry. Or we find tweets and embed those directly and things like that. So uh, what I've been doing is rewriting the whole rendering because our rendering right now just basically generates HTML from Swift code or from Objective-C code generates HTML, sticks it into the document, and then does some DOM transformation with jQuery and, and does some CSS stuff. And it, it's getting pretty unmaintainable. So I've started to, and I've mostly completely rewritten that rendering engine to be all in Elm. So now I just get JSON into the document instead of rendering HTML, get JSON in with some metadata about the images. And then I've been writing a, a parser specific for our journal entry formats. So um, using Elm, we go through, and, and regexes, Elm and regexes, I go through and I, I break down the document, the journal entry, into uh, nodes, and I'll, I'll break out text markdown nodes that I send off to the markdown renderer that just get rendered directly as markdown. But any of the fancy stuff that we want to handle outside of the markdown renderer, I, I've written uh, Elm modules for that kind of stuff. So I'll parse out YouTube links and get the information I need and store them as an algebraic data type that says, this is a YouTube link and this is the ID. And then I use Elm HTML to generate the whole entry. And for those non-markdown things like the YouTube, uh, the YouTube embeds, I'll just put in uh, an iframe. Yeah, I'll, I'll use Elm to generate that HTML and render it to the page. And it has turned out very very well. I've been extremely happy with how quickly I was able to get it done using Elm. And also I was able to write tests around the different extractors. So to handle to handle the uh, side cases that before we were just kind of hoping were covered with our jQuery stuff, because our jQuery stuff wasn't tested at all. Um, and so now we've got a test suite surrounding the parser. Uh, now it, it's easy to extend and it makes sense how it's very quick and easy to add a new extractor if you want to extract a part of the document. I've been very, very, very pleased with how the, the change that Elm has brought to this for us. And so that's what I've been up to too.
That sounds like... Right, so Jessica mentioned on the show last time uh, Badass by Kathy Sierra. Um, yeah. That workflow you're describing where it was like, it's easy to do a complex thing. That's something nice that Elm gives you, isn't it? Uh, it basically gives you a superpower. And that also makes it easy for you to give your users superpowers, right? Where they're like, well, I have this tweet. Uh, okay, what was that again? And they don't have to think about it now. They just say, it's here. I'm looking at it. Absolutely. And that's, that's great because I, I get to see the direct positive influence of that uh, because I use the product daily and I have for years um, and I use it for Elmtown and I, I took the links for the tweets that we were, got questions for and I dropped them into the entry and before this was supported I'd have to go in and click each one of those links to remember what the question was but directly I'm starting to get benefit in my everyday non-development life from having done that too hmm. and so that's pretty neat I love being both the user and the developer oh yeah get to scratch and your own itch I really have to read that book too, uh, because it's been suggested many times. Oh, it's amazing. You'll love it. Excellent. All right. Any more things before we move on to our main topic of discussion? Negatory. Let's move on to the main theme of the show, which is talking about refactoring, talking about update functions, since the update function is such a core part of everyone's Elm applications. And I have heard that Luke has some serious and passionate thoughts about this. So let's start with Luke telling us stuff and then we can we can go ahead and pick it apart. Perfect. Okay. So I this is like um it's gonna be I hope a conference talk at some point. So I'll try and not like make this explanation the full forty five minutes that it will eventually be. Oh right. geez man, spoiler alert. <laughs> um okay, so I have this like this idea that the like a, a web client, like a client application, is like the loneliest thing in the universe. Client applications, like they can't trust anything, so they're kind of like floating out there in the user's browser, and the user can like literally click whatever they want, and they can type whatever they want with focus on any element that they want. So like infinity things can happen in the browser at the user's desire. And then at the same time, um, you might have an idea of what your server is going to send you, but like, you don't have any control if you're a web like a, a client application. So you kind of just have to like send off a request to a server and be like, I think I know what you're going to do and who you are, but like, the server can send whatever it wants. So the client's just like floating around in this like complete land of chaos, and it's like the only control that it has is. Uh, to, to organize things within its realm. And so I've kind of discovered that in Elm, you, uh, you make this happen when you write your messages. So uh, I've started writing messages as if the messages are like the list of things out of all the possible things that can happen in the world that our client actually wants to know about. And that really informs how I write my update functions. So I tend not to make a message that's like delete item by ID. I would write a message that's like, uh, you know, delete button clicked or like delete something that represents that the, there's an action that occurred in the UI that is um, going to be interpreted by my update function as something that eventually deletes a thing. But 
the name of the action is more about like what happened out in the world and declaring that this is something I care about and want, want to, to do something with. So you're thinking of your messages as, as kind of the liaison or the way to understand any outside event, including stuff that comes from within Elm events. Is that right, Luke? Yes. Interesting. I think we were actually having a fight about this on Elm Dev a little bit ago. Yes. Um, were you part of that discussion? I usually am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you going to have a fight about it now? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Boxing gloves on, everybody. Yeah. Oh, I left it at home. <laughs> okay. All right, Luke, just cover your face. Okay. <laughs> um, I think you're right, Luke. And I would actually take it a step farther and say that your messages are the intents of your user or a message that needs to be handled in the server case, um, which is also an intent, right, of your application developer. Mm -hmm. So I would say that not only are they liaisons to your, like, what actually happens in your code, but they're intents of what should happen. So to your delete ID uh, example, I would say it's like delete thing, you know, where thing is the type of thing you're deleting, mm -hmm. and your, your type encodes the parameters of that thing, how to specify it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, intents. Yes. So let me see if I can identify the difference between what you two are saying. Because Luke just said that he wouldn't name it delete thing. He would name it user clicked delete button, essentially. Right, Luke? Uh, maybe something less verbose, but more to that effect. Less verbose. Come on. <laughs> you know, Objective-C has the right idea with Fair their right. verbosity. Yeah, just verbose enough spacing. to convey the intention. <laughs> Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So go ahead. But you were, So what's the difference then between what you two are saying, Luke and Brian? Because those sound like two different ways of naming it. One is saying, oh, this event just happened. And the other one is saying, program, I want you to do X. I think it's a very soft difference. Yeah. You don't think it, is it trivial? Does it matter? I don't know. All right. I, it's maybe something... Um, that I more keep in mind while I'm designing message types rather than in actually what the type is named. So, yeah. I, I figure that the the click event or the enter event or, you know, somebody using a screen reader has completely different types of events. So I tend not to name things with an actual action in mind, but the intent that the action conveys. Right, okay. And then accept messages from my view function um, will create those intents when the when the handlers happen. And at that point, that's when you're tying uh, the intent to a specific implementation of uh, triggering that uh, intent. Okay, makes sense. awesome. I think we're on the same page. I always make this mistake and give an example which uh, includes the word click. And I need to like remember to not do that from now on <laughs> because I completely agree. Um, what I was like trying and, and not being successful in conveying is that the message, um, the message says what happened, in the, in the view or, or wherever. Uh, it doesn't say what's going to happen. Ah, oh, I like that. Yeah, that mm. makes sense. Yeah, definitely. The update function because says what's going to happen. That's really cool because if you're naming your messages about what's going to happen, they could easily become lies very quickly. Yes. Mm -hmm. But if you're naming them about after what did happen, it's a lot. It seems like it's a lot harder mentally for those to become lies in your code. Yes, and you well, also actually go ahead. You also don't end up in a situation where you're in the habit of writing messages about what's going to happen, and then all of a sudden 
you have a, a delete by ID message. And then you also have another message which now needs to also delete things by ID. And then you jump into the Slack and say, how can I trigger a message from another message? Because that's like the surefire sign that this is going on. Yeah. That is good to know. Somebody's trying to use too many components. Right. So let's uh, pause for just a minute in this wonderful advanced discussion. And for those of, for those listeners who have no idea what's going on because they just want to learn about Elm, let's recap really quickly what the update function is and what messages are. Um, so I'll throw in that the update function, the Elm application architecture is structured around a view function, a function that takes a model and generates a view from it, an update function, which takes a custom data type, which is a message, takes a message and a model, and it'll return a new model. And then it's also structured from the model. So those are the main three things. And then there's there's a bunch of wiring that goes uh, that Elm does for you that you don't have to do. So basically, when, when interaction happens in the app, your update function gets called with a message. And those messages are things that you define. So that's very basically the outline of what we're talking about here. So we're talking about specifically the update function and the messages that go into it. Mm -hmm. And actually, so, how you name your messages is way inside baseball. But it's important to uh, convey your intent as a developer as well. It's important to convey your intent. And also, I've, I've found that it's a possible source of distraction, too. So coming up with a good, uh, what I mean by that is a lot of time can be wasted trying to figure out how to consistently name messages and say, like, oh, that doesn't really make sense fitting. It doesn't really fit with the names of all the other messages. Like, what, what do I do about that? Um, so coming up with a methodology for naming messages, I think, could be pretty helpful to save time and just move forward with things. For sure. Luke, was that your whole idea? Did you want to talk more about other parts of it? Uh, I just wanted to mention that um, when you, if you do find that you, you suddenly need to trigger some other message from the handler for a different one just in order to reuse that code, um, uh, it's important, like this is, that's really, that's like not easy to do. It's really awkward to do. And that's like, I think that's on purpose. Um, because messages are not composable. They are intended to come in one after the other. Uh, so if you do find like, oh, I need to, you know, trigger the, the contents of this message down here from this one up here, um, what you might want to do instead is write a function called uh, delete by ID or whatever. And then if you really still do have like two situations where something gets deleted by ID, now you have a function you can call from both and you can test that function. And now it's just like a, you know, a part of the model's domain, something the model knows about instead of having to keep all of your information about your model embedded in your update function. That makes sense. So, uh, one of the users who the, the user who asked the question that that brought this about, um, and I should have written down the name and I didn't for the tweet. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're not citing you, user who asked this question. Super Elm user person. We love super, you. Super mega Elm user. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were asking about refactoring fat update functions and kind of how to work with them. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what makes an update function fat and what makes you feel like it needs to be broken apart and also how to handle certain circumstances where it actually feels necessary to uh, maybe, maybe do some parent-child communication. But let's talk about that part after uh, and what things can be done about it. But first, let's talk about what makes an update function oh, shoot, fat. my computer's going to die. <gasps> oh, no. I need like nine seconds to get my charger. 
let's hope he makes it. If he doesn't, <laughs> he can come back in in just a second. Sure. So in my experience, I have found update functions to become unwieldy and fat when I am trying to do componentization. And let's talk about that for a second because uh, React, if you're coming from the world of React, you think a lot about components. And components in React, uh, up until recently, have been self-contained UI elements that maintain internal state. And that doesn't exist in Elm. So at ElmConf, I was talking to Richard Feldman about this, and I was kept talking about different components. And he said, well, don't, don't talk about components, because in Elm, all you have are view functions. Uh, you don't have components, or you shouldn't be having components. Um, because components maintain internal state. Now, w we do have things that emulate components because they're in order to make something general and reusable, you generally want to have a little sub update function that that maintains a little sub piece of state and is and its own sub messages and update itself. Uh, but I the thing I wasn't doing very well is I think I was defaulting to that structure way too often. I was thinking, oh, every time I have a new thing, a new visual group of stuff, I should make a component for it. I should give it its own sub-message, give it its own sub-model, give it its, its own sub-update function. And that really quickly makes the update functions above unwieldy and difficult to handle. Mm. So uh, what I learned from that at ElmConf was that we should always think twice before we make a quote-unquote component or a, a grouping of uh, update model and view. I think that Aussie called that a triplet in his ElmConf talk. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So be before we go and jump right to that, we should think: Do I do I really need to make this happen? Is this going to be? Is this thing that I'm making right now going to be used in more than one place? Is it really necessary to make it abstract? Because it costs a little bit to abstract it out. Because the parent update function has to do a little bit more work to embed that in itself. Uh, and so I was able to, A, clean up my update functions by just not componentizing, or, sorry, I don't know if that's the right word to use, not making triplets as often, putting, putting more stuff onto the model uh, at, uh, just onto the big model and making view functions for, for sub-views. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has been a good thing for me. Uh, that has not been a problem yet. But it's still appropriate in certain circumstances to actually break out a triplet, and we could talk about that in a minute. But Brian, do you have any input on this or Luke? Uh, yeah, I actually do. Um, I think that this is a common problem because it feels like a good architecture pattern to break things out into the smallest units possible. Like everybody's used to doing that, who's used to object-oriented programming, right? Where we want to have this small little testable unit. And it, and it feels good to do. So people tend to get themselves into this problem and then say, oh, wait, hold on, this is not as easy as I thought it would be, or this is causing problems in these ways when I need to communicate uh, between these triplets. So I think the solution is to just say, uh, Yagni, right? You're not going to need it, or you are going not need, I don't remember. <laughs> That's good, I like it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you ain't going to need it. That's what it is. <laughs> and... Uh, I think if we if we practice that, saying let's put off componentizing this until we absolutely know we need it, we're going to end up with a lot better architectured Elm apps because um, so like in React you have basically 
okay, to my understanding, not being a professional React user, the component is the basic unit of composition in a React app, and it's not in L. Like, we call them components or triplets or whatever, but it's not the basic unit of composition. That's the function, right? right. So if you need something to be done uh, separately and you want to test it separately, extract it into a different function and test it that way. Yeah, and it's also important to remember that this that separation of the view and the model and the the update logic are built into the Elm application architecture, and that's a great thing because you're you're no longer tied your your model is no longer directly tied to the visual representation of it, and some pretty cool stuff can start to happen once those things are separated out. Like if you watch, for example, uh, Jay Longster's talk from React Rally. He talked about rewriting the uh, the Firefox dev tools in Redux, which follows the Elm application architecture roughly, loosely, and that's a that's a React thing. So they rewrote it in Redux and React, and because of that separation of state and view, which you know we've been told to do for many years now, uh, but is often easy to forget. Because of that separation, they were able to take the very same update code, the basically the same update function and the messages, and they were to write, they, they wrote front end, different front ends for the Firefox debugger, and they just worked. So he, he wrote like a command line debugger that just worked with the new Firefox debugger. And then he went in uh, to Emacs and he had written an Emacs plugin for live debugging of his code inside of Emacs that used the Firefox debugger just because it followed that architecture too. So I thought that was a really neat uh, neat example of that. And I'm going to write that down to put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, Reactive patterns in general are useful for architecting uh, like just any kind of system, really. Like events come out, stuff happens, you know? Yeah. So, so far we've covered simplify your update function by not decomposing when it's not necessary. Is that right? I think that's about right. Um, Luke, did you have anything about that? I, I keep seeing you unmute yourself. Uh, I no, I just I generally agree with all of this. Awesome. So I'll throw in here now. Uh, the pick that I actually made last episode was a library called Elm Return, and it packages up the return type of the update function into a type, and gives you a bunch of functions to use to operate on that type, and that has been cognitively very helpful to me uh, because I like to update my functions. I'm sorry, update my functions. I like to test my update functions by uh, running them through a set of actions as if the user were interacting with the page and making sure that the output is as I expect. And that is totally easy to do if your update function doesn't have any effects that it returns, if it's a simple update function. But as soon as your update function moves into the complex one where where you can return a new model and also effects, things get a little bit ugly to try to uh, to try to run through a number of actions because uh, it, it's not a pipeable thing where it's model in, model out. All of a sudden it's model in and model and effects out and you can't pipe that until you run into this return library, this way of thinking of it as one type because all of a sudden you get model in thing out and then it's got functions that it provides for piping so it made my testing code a lot easier because i could take that update function and just pipe it through a bunch of actions and say just modify the actions i don't care about the effects that are coming out and let me examine the model after it's gone through a bunch of things so that that's for testing but that's also it it simplifies some things for composition too 
Um, so I found that to be helpful in refactoring my big update functions. I love situations where you can use the, the forward apply operator like all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a, once you start doing that, it encourages you to write nice functions that can go into your pipelines. So not only is it better when you refactor into that, it also makes your code going forward a little bit nicer too, just by kind of getting you into that situation in the first place. And you know, I didn't realize this before, but I think that you could call that a design pattern. I'm often, because of school, I think of design patterns as like the visitor pattern or singleton, et cetera. But I think that things like composition and currying and functions that take that are partially applied until they take one th- one argument and they're composed. Yeah, those are all design patterns that are very useful. I would state. Do you agree? I do. I actually wrote a blog post about this. Like one of well, the two blog posts I've ever written. Mm-hmm. So I'll share that. I can remember what it's called. Anything from you, Brian? Um, just that I think that uh, the forward application operator is super, super useful. Um, I think the design pattern that you're talking about, I would call that point freestyle. Um, just to, you know, completely butcher a borrowed term. Uh, just because we can say we've got this bunch of functions, just pass them to the, uh, the forward or backward composition operator. And, oh, look, you've got a new function that does all this stuff. Now, there's a difference between the piping and the composition operators, right? Oh, yeah. The application operator and the piping operator. Sorry, application operator and the composition operator. Do you want to explain the difference, Brian? Um, Okay, sure. So the forward application operator, this is that pipe greater than sign in Elm. I'm making it with my hands. You you know, this doesn't work. It looks like a big fat arrow with no tail. Yeah, exactly. It's like a triangle facing right. And you also can make a triangle facing left that'll do this backwards. But essentially, it'll take the output from one function and apply it as the last argument to another function. So you can chain functions together in really nice ways. So I like to make the analogy of like, um, so the forward application operator is like joining two pieces of PVC together with one of those little rings so water can flow through them. But you're doing it while the water is flowing. So it's a little bit of an awkward analogy. And then the, uh, the functional composition operator, that's two greater thans or two less thans, um, depending on the direction, is like doing it when there's no water in the pipes, right? So you don't have a value flowing through. You can just say, this is my pipe thing. Put everything through here and it'll just work. Um, I, I kind of expanded on this in a blog post as well. Uh, we're going to have a lot of blog posts in the show notes. I'll, I'll put that in. Sweet. Well, so that makes sense. Uh, can you tell us really quickly, either Luke or Brian, what is necessary in order to uh, accommodate both of those situations? What do you need, A, in order to make a composable, I'm sorry, in order, to, what things, what building blocks do you need in order to be able to use the forward application operator? And what building blocks do you need in order to be able to use the composition operator? You need a very small operation, right? So um, I think the uh, that a good example of this, I think, is oh gosh, what is it? It's like result dot to task in the standard library. So if you have a result of anything like a JSON decode string result, you can uh, pipe that into there, and all of a sudden it's a task. And then you can call task dot perform on it in another pipe to get a uh, like a command. So you can use these things to just do all your conversions and turn converting a random JSON string you have into 
a command that you can use in an update function. So for like JSON debugging. So in order to be able to use the actual operator, I need to have a function that only requires one argument to be complete. Is that right? You want to um, you want to write a function that will accept the like the main thing that you're working on that you're flowing through as the last um, argument. So you can still pre-apply okay, so your function with any ambient context, but then you you have this like one last thing that is that is flowing all the way through. Yeah. So, so piping is built to take one thing and put it through a bunch of functions. Well, it takes one more argument in a partial application sense. So if you want the thing that flows through the next pipe to be a function that takes a bunch more arguments, uh, or you know, a partially applied function that takes more arguments, then you can totally do that. Like if you wanted something, some complicated thing to be passed to list.map as the map function, you could totally do that and get a map a uh, mappable thing out of it, right, that you could then call with values. It'll just return the the next value for partial application. And I, th and I think Brian is describing exactly how the, the NoRed Inc. Elm decode JSON pipeline library works. Actually, yeah. This is also Which how also, uh, HTTP builder works, too. It's a, it's a fantastic pattern, and if you're not scared of the words, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that that is an applicative functor which is why those things can work in a similar way. It's, it's when you've got a container of a value and a container of a function that takes that value, you can, you can do some fancy things to compose them. And Haskell does that all the time. Yeah. If I'm wrong, please let me know too. That would be, I would be much appreciative of that. So that's super neat. So that's how uh, piping works, but then composition's a different thing. Brian, you were saying that composition is what happens when you, you're trying to put the pipes together without water running through it, right? Right. So it basically so does just, the same thing, though. But you need, in, in order to make function composition work, you need to be able to put one thing in at the beginning and have one thing come out at the end, right? I mean, that'll happen no matter what. And if it doesn't, the type checker will yell at you. So, Okay, great. That's kind of what I'm wondering. Like, what do you need to do to make the type checker happy for this to work? You, you end up with a bunch of functions that just take one argument and, and you plug them into each other. Yeah. I think a really simple example is if you wrote a function that would add one to a number, so it takes number and returns number, um, and then you you uh, used the function composition operator to get two of those together, you would get a function back that when you passed in a number would return two more than the number you passed in instead of one. So it's a great point. You really just uh, so the the value that you're operating on is sometimes called the point, to my understanding, um, which is why this style is sometimes called point-free composition, because you're doing it without a value. Makes sense. And there's some... building the machine that's going to work on the value. Yeah. The, the Rube Goldberg machine, if you will. <laughs> it is kind of Rube Goldberg-esque. Well, guess what? We're nearing the end of our time. So uh, are, are there any last-minute thoughts on... We, I don't even know if we got to talk about refactoring at all. Any last-minute thoughts on update functions and how to structure them or make them more simple? Um, uh, I just want to summarize. Um, please do. If you need to reuse code between messages in your update function, extract that code into a function and call it in both messages. Don't try and trigger one message from another. That's, that's, my, that's my crusade. Do yeah. you have a blog post about that, Luke? I don't. 
I'm like, so my my blog post, the name of the website is called Trouble Concentrating, where the first part of the word concentrating is the cons operator. And I think it's so <laughs> appropriate because clever. I like made it and I wrote two posts in like February and then I've never written anything else. I mean, hey, you, it's a great name. Right? But Basically, you just need to like record yourself talking about it and then stick it up there. Someone else can. Yeah. It's a good idea. Translate it into a blog post. Do it in your, uh, in your live coding. That sounds good. I'll do that. Hmm. I would be interested in an example of that, Luke, because I'm not sure I'm totally getting the pattern in my head, and I'd love to be able to understand that better. Cool. I will, I will write it down. I will make a commitment to write it down and share it. <laughs> Great. Brian, I do you have any to... summary to apply? Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just asking you to speak, which is what you were doing. Oh, wow. Cool. Thank you. Um, I wanted to address real quick uh, one of the other parts of the question, which was how do you deal with like child communication? Um, the short answer is don't, please don't, uh, is the longer answer. Uh, because you basically run into all these problems that we're talking about. There are a few very specific, <clears throat> pardon me, there are, hold on, I got a cough. All right, I'm back. Artfully uh, muting during the cough. Very well done. Yeah. So there are a very few very specific um, situations in which you'd want to pass a message back to the parent. So uh, one of the, the better ones I've seen is a date picker, right? Where you need to have the date that the date picker is, you know, doing, but it's managing its own state, like what month is selected. You don't really care about that. You just need to pass messages down as they're clicked. Um, so the solution there is to turn the return value of the update function of your quote-unquote component, this triple thing that you extracted, um, into a, a, I guess, a three-tuple or a triple instead of a, a tuple, which is two values. And the third value is the message that the child is passing back to the parent. Um, Bogdan P, so I'm going to get his name wrong, Bogdan Popa, I think, um, wrote the Elm Date Picker library, just recently published it, uh, and it uses this pattern, right? So uh, other situations you can use in it are like scroll bars, but they have to be things that are like really, really uh, just components that you need to drop in. Like, and I'm using components again loosely, but like you don't want to do it in your everyday code. You shouldn't need to pass messages back to your parent. Try to avoid it. So this is, that's a good point, and here's an example that I, I was trying to ask people about at ElmConf that I came up with too. Uh, a situation when this might be needed is if, if you have a part of you, your UI that w where things can error a lot, things can error all the time, and uh, in subviews, and you want to be able to handle that in a single upper place instead of rewriting the error handling or error display code in all of the child views. Well, one way you could do that is doing exactly what you said, Brian, uh, returning not just the model and the effects from the update function, but returning model effects validations, you know, whatever, whatever could error and did error, and then you handle that uh, in, in the parent. So instead of trying to, like, reach in from the parent to the child update or to the child message and, like, grabbing the validations and stuff, which can get messy, just return a different, a different type. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think in general, um, we're all adults here and we get to define what APIs or modules use because like, that's decisions that we have to make. Uh, but there are certain patterns that you can really shoot yourself in the foot with and this is one of them. 
So you're saying that returning more than just the model and the effects can be a shot in the foot if you're not careful. Yeah, I would almost call it an anti-pattern. It, it's not because it's really useful in some cases, like date pickers. But in general, don't do it. And I will say that I ended up not going with that pattern after I tried it a little bit, and I just wrote the error display code in two places. Yeah, I actually I, wrote a blog post about this, and now I'm like a little bit sheepish that I wrote it, like promoting this pattern, because I didn't realize that it was uh, a little bit destructive in the common case when I wrote it. So I was like, uh... Now you got to write an, an apology, a public apology. A little bit. <laughs> so we won't link that blog post yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, I actually at ElmConf, um, dear listener, Murphy was reading my blog post, and I saw it on his screen, and I was like, I d don't do that. <laughs> so I really should update them. It's true. That's what he said. And I said, you're wrong. <laughs> I need to do this. And then I was wrong, too. <laughs> so that's great. I think we had a good conversation. Are there any last points before we move on to picks? I have no more points. Great. Thanks for having no more points. Brian? Uh, no, no further points. You're pointless. Your honor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, let's move on to picks. Um, I will pick last since I am the author and I don't want to dupe anyone's picks. So uh, let's start with Brian. Okay. Um, my first pick is the ancient uh, Scottish. Because whenever Murphy says picks, I hear picks. Uh, I put a Wikipedia <laughs> article in the show notes. <laughs> So I actually, uh, real picks, I have uh, four of them, so I'll try to be quick. Uh, the first one is a daily newsletter that I've recently subscribed to and I'm really enjoying. It's called Poem. It will send you a poem every day. It's really cool. Um, second pick is the Contributor Covenant. It's a really well-written code of conduct. I think that all open source projects and everything that you have more than one person working on needs a code of conduct. And I think this is a really good one. And the creator of it is open to having people uh, modify it to add on their specific community guidelines. So it's it's really good. Um, and you should take it out or uh, check it out. Um, I, I love the Contributor Covenant. Yeah, I it's pretty it, good. I have it on every project where I've remembered to add the code of conduct yeah. and every other project that I have, like, should implicitly have it. I just haven't, mm -hmm. uplo like, uploaded it yet. Yeah. I, I think, in general, the uh, the Geek Feminism Wikia Code of Conduct is really, really good um, for, like, events and public spaces, and the Contributor Covenant is amazing for repos. So those would be my choices, in general. We actually, uh, for ElmConf, I was going to use the... Uh, the Geek Feminism Wikia uh, Covenant, or the Code of Conduct, but then we were under Strange Loop, and I was like, okay, it doesn't make sense to have two codes of conduct, especially not when theirs has been tested and used. So we just went with that one. Certainly. Um, okay, so third pick, uh, 30 by 500, is a class... <laughs> yeah, these are not Elm-related at all. I'm sorry. Um, is a class by Amy Hoy and Alex Hillman, and it is awesome. Actually, the founder of Egghead is a alumni of this class, and a lot of what uh, Egghead's marketing and like philosophy stem out of that, like address pain directly and solve these things for people, and they'll, they'll pay you, right? 
So I would recommend that to anybody who's looking at doing, um, especially building a business around uh, information and education. And my fourth one uh, is actually Elm related, surprise. It's Elm Combined by, again, sorry, Bogdan Popa. I hope that's how you say his name. Uh, it's basically a parser combinator library in Elm, and you can do all kinds of things with it. It's this Lego concept again, where you can just combine parser combinators and they're super great. So those are my picks or picked. Way to go. <laughs> Thank you for the picks and the picks. Luke? Uh, so my first pick is, um, so I got to, to spend an evening talking to Andre Stotz a couple of days ago uh, out in, in Copenhagen. And we were talking about Elm and how lovely it is that there are so few concepts in Elm that you can kind of just like push stuff aside and like focus on what you're doing. And he, he told me that he had actually written a blog post about this called Everywhereness as a Foundation. Everywhereness being like a concept or like a thing that's used everywhere. So for Elm, it, it's stuff like immutability. Um, and using functions for composition, and even like the the guarantees that Elm provides you, they have, affect your productivity and they improve your productivity. And then for Cycle, it's the idea that um, streams are just everything is a stream, everything is a reactive stream, and that makes you really productive because you don't have to make decisions. Um, you make decisions about what you're trying to do instead of like the little details about how to do it. And so I, I read the blog post, and it's, it's wonderful. And so that's one of my picks. Um, Excellent. My second pick is the Soft Skills Engineering Podcast. It is Love my, it. Yeah. It's my favorite podcast in the world. Um, it's uh, hosted by Dave Smith and Jameson Dance. And it's, you should just listen to it. I'm going to share the, the link to the Twitter. It's about um, things you need to be successful in engineering that aren't technical skills and it's just a lot of fun. Um, my third pick is Thunder Plains Conference. Um, so nothing about Elm there this year I don't think but it's just a, a really cool conference um, planned by really wonderful people who do a great job and I don't get to go to it this year and I hope that I can next year. Awesome. Uh, one more pick, which is uh, oh, Elm Live that I mentioned before, which is Aaron Vonderhaar's uh, live streams that he does. Yay. Hi, Aaron. Excellent. Thank you for those super awesome picks, Luke. Of course. I will do some picks now. Uh, and first pick is another podcast. And this one is called Hacked. I just found it this week from someone on Twitter, and it is a fantastic podcast. Uh, I will link to it in the show notes, of course, but it's about basically tactics for hacking, uh, and it helps us raise awareness of how we should be protecting ourselves from hackers. And the answer in a lot of cases is you don't, <laughs> which is a little bit scary and sad, but it's also really amazing to kind of hear the methods that are being used and be aware of the vulnerabilities and risks that are around us. And it's also just pretty impressive, the kind of things that people do. So, and, and it's a high production quality on that podcast. So I recommend that. And the second thing is 
Gizra wrote a post recently. I hope I said that right too. Maybe it's Gizra, but Gizra wrote a post about using Elm in a mock-up for a client when they were trying to do uh, it. They needed to mock-up or, or do an email inbox mock for a client because that client was trying to do this to uh, evaluate their their new hires or their potential hires. And so they just threw it together using Elm and and, he, and it's written about how that was a wonderful experience for them and, and a really good thing. And I was pretty motivated by the writing. I liked it a lot. So link that in there. And the last thing that I want to pick is just being kind to people. Uh, that is, I think, sometimes underrated and under uh, undervalued, underpaid attention to probably in normal life. Um, I've been going through some frustration because I've been trying to sell my house and buy a new house and for months now, and we have to sell our house before we can buy the new house uh, in order to make the down payment. And so it turns out that the people who are buying our house have had some difficulty getting the stuff done. And also there's just been a lot of difficulties with like their lender and their agents and things like that. And we've had plenty of opportunity to get angry. But I started to notice during that time that getting angry about it wasn't helping me at all feel okay or be okay. Um, and, and instead I got to sit for a minute and think, you know, wh what if the people who are trying to get all this stuff done are having just as hard a time as I am with other things. And maybe, maybe they're not shirking their responsibilities. Maybe they're just trying their best and we're all doing our best. Um, and that I felt a lot better after that too. So I'm just going to pick giving people the benefit of the doubt and being kind to them, even if they aren't doing exactly what you would hope that they would do. Um, I don't know if I can actually pick that, but since I'm the author of the podcast, I, I'm going to say that I can't. Well, you can't link to it. <laughs> link to being kind. Link to being kind.com. I, I don't know if that's a thing. Don't go to it. Wikipedia. Dot, is there an article for being kind? That's the question. Being kind. Nope, there, there's not. There's. Did you mean being king? I'm going to pick being king. That's a good pick. <laughs> I'm going to pick being king of the picks. All right. That's it, I think. Thank you so much, Brian and Luke, for giving your time. And thank you, dear listener, for giving your time. And we send our gratitude to all of you and say goodbye. Oh, bye, everybody. Bye, friends. Bye.